0: Hello global citizens. It's Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. It is the first day of autumn and the seasons are changing and we're getting more and more into the lives careers of local citizens around the world, particularly here in the U.S., since I am here for an extended period, making sure that my vote counts without having to deal with any absenteeism and just making sure that I'm doing my citizenship duty of voting. So this week, I am in New York, and my guest, who is based in Los Angeles, California, is joining me for a two-part conversation my guest is an old friend. His name is Dr. Murray Rayfu, who is an accomplished spine and neurosurgeon with particular expertise in minimally invasive endoscope-assisted spine surgery. That is a mouthful. <laughs> He's based in LA as I mentioned, where he spends his time not only managing his cases in his private practice, he is also an assistant professor of neurosurgery at UCLA. He's a member of the Africa Union and Africa CDC COVID-19 Clinical Case Management Group. And he's the CEO and founder of health tech startup, Talamus Health. We're so happy to have Murray on the podcast today. Hi there, global citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. I'm Florence Adu and I'm your host. And this week we're coming to you entirely from the United States. That's me in New York. And my guest this week is in Los Angeles, California. And I guess I don't have to say anything more. I just, I'm just really excited. This is an old friend. I think we're going to have a great conversation about the work he's doing in Africa, as well as the work he does here in the U.S. And so I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Murray Reifu. Hello. Hi, welcome. So Murray, tell us more about who you are and what inspires you.
1: Hmm. Who am I? I mean, how long do we have?
0: (laughs) We we have as much time as you're willing to offer.
1: (laughs) I, I, I like to think of myself as a regular man. It's a regular guy who is just trying to navigate uh, his way through the world and and do some good while I'm here. You know, my profession is great, but it doesn't fully define who I am, you know. I'm a neurosurgeon, as you all know. Um, I have my own private practice uh, here in Los Angeles and um, also have a tech company that um, is both here in the States and also uh, on the continent. As you all know, I was born and raised in Ghana. Moved here when I was... um, 15, just about to turn 16, mm-hmm. um, way back in the day,
0: <laughs>
1: um, you know, but I also have Nigerian heritage mixed in um, as well. So I have both. And my mom is still in Kumasi. I'm a Kumasi boy. I was born and raised there. Kumasi. say Krum, yeah. But, you know, in my childhood, I spent some time in Lagos as well. And then uh, in the United States, I've pretty much lived in several places, Massachusetts for college. New York for work, Minnesota for high school and all of that, and California for training. And now I'm back in California. Um,
0: Okay, back in Cali, back in Cali. So you're my first physician, my first doctor on the program. So when I was growing up, that was what I was supposed to be, right? I was supposed to be a doctor. Like everyone's like, okay, yes, exactly. You're going to be a doctor. Or
1: engineer or lawyer or...
0: Right, well, I, I, chose I, ch- I chose the engineer. I chose the
1: engineer. You know, you have to choose one of those. Otherwise, yeah. it's a problem. Yeah,
0: basically, basically. But I was, I actually, I love math and science. So I was actually pretty committed to medicine until I did a few internships and I just hated the hospital. So tell us about how how you came to be a physician.
1: So, I mean, you know, I was one of those, Kids in college that actually thought about so many other career paths. Um, you know, while I was in college, yes, you know, medicine, you know, I had moved to the United States pretty much on my own. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was uh, no family here really. I had some like, host families that I had become close to. But my mom wanted me to just do as well. And being a first generation college graduate, um, it was one of those things that there was no precedence to say, OK, this is what you must be. Obviously, being a doctor, being an engineer, being a lawyer, all of those are sort of things that you always looked up to just because you're African. <laughs> right. Um, right. But, but I always had the option to do other things. You know, I never felt the pressure to really become a doctor, per se. Right. Mm-hmm. So in college, actually, I was a double major. In biology and also in black studies, which for those who are not aware, is a combination of African studies, you know, African-American studies and Caribbean studies all put together. And I was a major in that. And I actually did a thesis on syncretic religions, for example. A lot of people don't know that about me. So. No,
0: not at all. <laughs>
1: You know, and I did another thesis. I was crazy. I did another thesis in biology that had to do with genetics and all of that. So I'm also kind of trying to see where the bleeding edge is between those kinds sure. of things. And really consider for a long time doing African literature for grad school. Okay. Um, so kind of going down that path um until I decided to just do the, to do medicine. Well, I was still a student, student on a student visa, and you know, when you're under those constraints there are certain paths, you kind of almost get guided through a certain set of pathways, right? You go through the line of least resistance, (laughs) if you will. So your choices as to what you did next really was not purely about what you just wanted to do, but also part of it is driven by what you can do. So not to say that I'm not glad choosing the path of physician. I'm very happy with what I do and, and I feel very fortunate to do it. I'm just trying to explain that I wasn't one of those Africans where your head was being hit every day that this is the path you must take. Sure, sure, (laughs)
0: sure. sure. Yeah. And do you think some of that has to do with your mother? And you've mentioned this before. Your mother is a market woman. Yeah. So she's an entrepreneur in herself. So do you think that her not being so adamant about you having to choose one path was instrumental in that? In that her background?
1: Again, I mean, she's always been, you know, a woman who kind of has a very um, complicated insights about life, <laughs> if you mm. will. And, and, you know, she, I learned a lot from her just by observing her, right? Yeah. Her ability to be resilient in difficult times, her ability to kind of have tough times and then kind of rise back up in to ensure that the family was always okay that's always been sort of a strength that up until two, this day, when I have I'm in a tough spot, I go back to that. Right. Kind of, how does she manage these cancer situations with as little resources as she had? Um, right. Her ability to make do with very little and figure out solutions in some of the toughest times for me has been what has been my guiding principle. And everything I deal with. And that means going through residency. Most people realize after med school, for, res- for residency, you have to do seven years of yeah. residency. And during the time right. I was doing residency, we were working over 100 hours a week, sometimes 120 hours. So imagine having three jobs, three stressful jobs for seven years. Oh, That's how yeah,
0: like, I dated a resident before, and it was
1: exactly <laughs> so. So I mean, so that's what the experience of being a resident was like. And so yeah. there were many really t- tough times where I had to really draw back on how this this market woman again, uh, with very little education, but probably one of the smartest people. By the way, my mom can calculate anything. Um,
0: oh yeah,
1: in two seconds. Oh, back. Yes. one of the most brilliant minds I know. You know how does she handle these things? And for me also, it allows me to, uh, you know, my friends are like, well, you don't, you gotta let people know you're a neurosurgeon. You gotta do this, you gotta do that. And I tell them, I don't see it that way because I've never really defined someone's education. I've never equated someone's education to their level of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Because I grew up around a lot of people who were very, very, very smart. They just never got formal education. And so those are two separate things altogether. And so I say that, you know, I want to judge people based on their native intelligence, like their actual intelligence, not because they have some fancy degree from some fancy school or whatever, you know.
0: Sure, 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 sure. So let me ask also, why neurosurgery?
1: So it's funny because, you know, again, in the the vein of, you know, me being very Pan-African in my view, you know, and all of that. My initial goal in med school was to do internal medicine or emergency medicine, um, get an MPH, get hooked up with the World Health Organization, do a few things in that path. So that was mm-hmm. sort of, that's, yeah. that was what I thought I was going to do. Then, you know, when I was a medical student, and this is, in, this is um, I'm going to date myself now, this is in 2000, 2000, no, 19... Because I graduated two thousand two, so two thousand and one, yeah, correct. And I remember during, you know, and I remember going through the different rotations, and I realized I wasn't a medicine kind of guy. Ah. I'm more like a surgery kind of person. You know, I'm, I'm. Got it. I'm more like that. My temperament was more surgical. Sure. And, and so that is another lesson in life, right? I think I probably would not be happy for internal medicine right now. Uh, not because yeah. it's not a good field; it's just wouldn't not fit too. me. Yeah, in the field that I wanted to do. So, being able to pivot from what you had thought you're going to do, mm-hmm. when you have new information, your willingness to allow yourself to take in that information, right, and change your mind without feeling guilty, and change your mind without feeling like you have to make somebody happy it's extremely important to the long-term happiness for you. And so so I was really looked at it and I looked at, I mean, remember I was again an immigrant, no family support. I needed to start making some money (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. because I had family, I wanted to hop back home and all of that. And knowing that there's a long-term, an extra four years of hard-knock life for residency, for me to do in residency, by choosing neurosurgery versus internal medicine, you know at that time for me was whoa. I mean, this is a big life decision. Right. Um, but I couldn't get my way myself away from thinking this is the right thing for me. So I yeah. decided that okay, then I'm gonna do it anyway. And and so so I ended up doing neurosurgery. And exactly what attracted me to neurosurgery is one is I like challenges. It's mm-hmm. very challenging. Uh, you get to really. It's it's sort of at the edge of the buck the staff's here with me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've done trauma most of my career, which means sometimes you need to get into somebody's head within the next half hour to an hour, or they're done, like they're mm-hmm. dead. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. being able to organize everything around that from the time you get the phone call to organizing everybody and getting everybody on their game, A game, and getting into that person's head within an hour for me, was sort of the ultimate edge of what it means to really be out there making a difference. right? And so so that's the kinds of things that attracted me to neurosurgery.
0: Okay, okay. So before we get a little bit deeper into your entrepreneurial pursuits, I want to go into my why the where question. So this is where I ask you to tell us how you came to be living, working, and playing exactly where you live.
1: Okay, so... As you all know, I did my residency here at UCLA, at L- Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. But then when I was done, you know, between college, so I did the college in Massachusetts, Amherst College. And I had done a year, a year and a half or so stint in New York in the financial industries, believe it or not. I was okay. a biology analyst for a financial firm. Okay, um, no, wait, how did you, how did, how did you
0: get medical, into that? Okay. Well, I had been
1: admitted to several medical schools at a time. okay. But I couldn't pay for it because I was an international student. Ah, So, yes. and, and I didn't qualify for any scholarships. I didn't qualify for those kinds of things. Right. So I had to figure out how, now I've done the hard part. I've done the pre-med. I've done all that. And got into med school in spite of the restrictions around international students. Because right. a lot of people just wouldn't consider international students. So the pool of schools I could apply to at that time, I don't know if it's changed now. But at that time, the pool of schools to which I could apply to was limited. Mm -hmm. And then, but I got into several. And the question is, many of them are like, well, we need you to put four-year money into escrow. Now, back then, yeah, exactly. The whole four years into escrow.
0: What? Yeah.
1: A local guarantor.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, loans for you, for you to do that. And that was like, at that time was already... MESCO per year was about $45,000. So you're looking at getting somebody to guarantee you for $180,000 or you have to have the money in escrow. Okay, well, it, either way, you have to get the money in escrow. So they guarantee the loan for you. The loan goes into escrow so that they know you can actually pay for the four year of MESCO. Right. Right. And I still get from time to time, I think many schools still hold that because every so often, you know, someone will reach out to me and say, hey, I have a medical student who are two years into it and now they can't continue because, you know, somebody who was doing the escrow for them pulled out or something like that. So it was always a big deal. So for me, you know, I had gotten in and, you know, in spite of all the odds, Mm -hmm. but then now I have to figure out how am I going to pay for this? (laughs) Because my family certainly didn't have the money uh, to do that. So I took that year off one to say, okay, look again, My nature of bringing in information and and being willing to change paths, the set of information that comes to me says something else. And so that year was to figure it out. You know, and my friends, most of my friends in college, again, who, by the way, all did well in financial industry, were all going to the financial industries, my roommates, all of that. So I found a job in that space. It was great. It gave me time to really. And then I was in New York. I lived in Fort Greene at the time right on Washington Park and commuted to Manhattan yeah. uh, and kind of used that year to kind of sort out, you know, how I'm going to pay for med school. And so I was fortunate to be able to figure it out, connect myself to some people. So I had two jobs. My one, number one job is to go to work <laughs> and, and in some money to, to live and, and figure things out, save some money. The other part was to sort out the whole medical school payment right. So that's what I was able to do. And then went to before I could then start med school. Okay. Now, so, so then after med school, residency at UCLA, then of course I had made friends. A lot of my friends from college on the East Coast had moved, lived in New York still. Many of the friends I made in that year and a half were still in New York. And I made a very a lot of close friends. And so I was itching to get back to the, New York, you know, to the East Coast because most of the people I really knew were on the East Coast. Yeah. So I moved to the East Coast Joined the New York Presbyterian system and practiced. And I think that's where we met. Yes. In New York. So I was there for five years. And then, you know, I always tell people I left the continent by my heart, never left. I just, you know, while I was practicing, there was this itch that said, you know, there's much more I can do, you know, not just practice neurosurgery, which for a lot of people, like I'm crazy for even saying that neurosurgery <laughs> is a lie. Yeah. But I wanted something that I can do to actually affect a lot more people. You know, for a neurosurgeon, yes, I make a difference in people's lives on a one-on-one basis, but I felt like there were other ways, given where I am, what I know, um, the relationships I have, to do something bigger than Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And so five years into my practice, I decided to take a sabbatical and go and get my master's at the Kennedy School. Okay. So I went to get my master's in public administration, and that time I really started thinking about What am I going to do when I'm done with this master's? And ended up, uh, you know, starting this company, which is the Talamos Health, and decided that coming to California was one way to deal with it. Also, my girlfriend at the time, and now my wife, also lived in California. Okay. So, starting the practice in the place where you know people, of course, she was a big reason, one of the big reasons also. But coming here allowed me to do two things. It allowed me to start a practice because I still practice, but also start my, my company at the same time. And coming back to California, there was just so many people I knew from a residency that are now practicing in the community. So I was able to plug myself back into that Your community quickly, yeah. and get my sure. practice going while I, you know, I, slowly, you know, I, I get to the business of actually starting the tech company at the same okay. time. And California also is very tech-centric. Yeah. Yes. Place. So all of that put together was part of the reason I decided to, to move to California.
0: Okay. Okay. Nice. So so now let's talk about Telemus. So this is a, a tech company with a f- very specific focus. So tell us about that business.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, our tech company is, is essentially focused on kind of decentralized the healthcare experience and kind of digitizing that experience, especially when it comes to patient experience, because, you know, a lot of the tech um, innovations that you see are really B2B type of innovations. And that mm-hmm. is, is driven by making the hospitals run efficient, which is important, but none of them are built in a way that allows patients to also have good experience. So patients end up having to kind of fit themselves into whatever modality is created. And we wanted to kind of, do both in some regards you know give hospitals the ability to be more efficient in their processes but also to give patients the ability to actually have a say in the process as well Mm -hmm. and i wanted to do this on the continent as i mentioned before this is really for me about really changing the continent and the continent in a lot of ways has not doesn't have the kind of institute when it comes to digitization doesn't have the kind of institutional habits that we have here because You know, your U.S. has been through digitization for a while now. And whereas on the continent, the majority of places are still not digitized. So we saw an opportunity to create a digitization experience that doesn't only solve the B2B aspect of things, as in making hospitals efficient, but also inserts the patient experience as part of it, so that the patients actually have a much better experience. uh, So that's what we have. We started off initially as South Africa. We're in Ghana, Nigeria, and Zimbabwe at the moment. Okay. And believe it or not, now we, we, with COVID, we've seen a lot of opportunities here in the United States. So we've Absolutely. started exploring, exploring that as well.
0: Nice. So take us through the, the patient experience because so I've experienced both public and private mm-hmm. health in Ghana. And so public health is very interesting because it's all based on your folder. So you go to whatever institution, you get a folder and it's says paper folder. So if anything mm-hmm. happens to that folder, you're completely lost.
1: lost, yeah. There's, so,
0: there's nothing that's there. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so, so our, our system is a digital folder. So it, it gives you a digital fo- folder and it kind of aggregates all your folders regardless of where you go. As long as... Um, you are the one who interacted with them and gave permission. Not only does it allow you to pull the information um, from that folder to aggregate it in one place, and you can have it on your phone, but more importantly, by permissioning another place, they can automatically have access to your folder if they are on our system. And if they are not, you actually can pull up your phone and hand it over to them, and they can have access to that folder. So that's just one aspect of it. You know, you can make appointments um, on our system. You can manage your appointments. You can make appointments. You can change appointments. If things come up, you get reminders for your appointments. You can even pay for your medical care uh, on your phone. If you need to, you can can manage your medications uh, on your phone. You can do all sorts of things on there.
0: Sure. So are you considering, so you have branded it, but are you, do you also have like a white label? product that you kind of can bring yeah. and sell?
1: If, if it's a big institution, if, there's, yeah. if the institution is big, yeah, we do. And we have done quite a, a couple of those already. Awesome. So um, we've done, yeah, we've done with a, a large company down in Zimbabwe. We did a white label for them. Um, and then we did one for a company in Ghana as well. So we are open to that, but it can be on, just for efficiency sake and just from practicality sake, we can't do it for individual hospitals. Okay, Um, so it has to be a system. Yeah, it has to be a much, if you have a a lot of work to do that and maintain it. Sure, sure. um, Because
0: as soon as you say that, I'm thinking, wow, that's that's like the dream healthcare, I guess, kind of insurance company type of thing. Like that would Mm -hmm. be what I would envision is those are the users, particularly in Africa, where you can aggregate or even the government, right? So you basically equalize access. Through all of the, because if you go to one clinic or one hospital in Ghana, you you can't go to another. You have to stick with that one because your records don't follow you. So I, this sounds like a perfect solution for public health in the public sector, most definitely.
1: Yeah, in the public sector for sure, and, and we are yeah. looking to work with the public sector and all of that. So we are right. still in patients. Yeah,
0: right. Because the company's what it's four years old now, right?
1: Four years old, but, you know, people forget that when you start a company, it takes,
0: exactly you, know, you, have, to, you
1: have to build the tech. And people yes. assume that, mm-hmm. you know, because apps are so easy to find and download, people assume that building an, an application is a very easy thing. And it's yeah, not. It's exactly. a lot of work, right? Especially when you build then a multi. So our, int- our interface, you know, we have about 12 different interfaces. Right. On our platform. So there are so many roles Within our platform that we deal with, and we have inventory system, and uh, we even have a claims adjudication system. Speaking of insurance companies, and people forget that each of these things is uh, a juggernaut. That's in there a lot of work you know mm-hmm. that goes into building those things. So for the first few years of that starting, we were just basically building it, yeah. <laughs> and thinking all like, Yeah, we did a lot of the talk and be meeting people and kind of building the relationships um, from a customer side of things. But the tech itself, it always takes a while to really build it properly. You know, yes. Um, there are a lot of bad technology out there. But if you a want lot. to take technology, you have to really have to take your time. And sometimes building good technology just simply takes time.
0: Thanks for joining us for part one of my conversation with Dr. Murray Raifu. Please join us next week for part two when we hear more about Talima's health and the man behind the science. As always, you can catch us at www.glocalcitizenspod.com. You can catch us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, so many podcast platforms. Anywhere you look, you can probably find us. So, as usual, please do comment please do subscribe. Please do share with your friends and check out the show notes. They're going to be really, really great for this week's episode. So until next time, bye for now.